Welcome to Talk Shop, a commercial real estate finance podcast sponsored by Clear Market. Each episode will bring you real conversations with industry professionals and talk about how deals are getting capitalized with bridge, construction, and equity financing. Our guest today is JC Clemens. JC is the Director of Investments at Flagship Capital Partners, a Houston-based real estate fund focused on debt and limited partner equity investments. Prior to Flagship, JC worked at HFF in both capital markets and investment sales roles. He's a graduate of the University of Texas, where he was a silver spur handler for Biva, their beloved Longhorn mascot. We had a great conversation, and I hope you enjoy it. JCC, thank you for joining us. Um, excited to get into it here and, and talk about what you're doing at Flagship. But um, to start us out, let's uh, kind of get a little bit of background, a little bit of context on you and on what's your story. Yeah, no, thanks for, for having me on uh, and uh, appreciate Taking the time. Uh, so yeah, background on me, graduated from UT, I guess it was 2011. Uh, started work at HFF uh, about two weeks after graduating. Was in kind of the mortgage banking analyst pool for about three and a half years, which was a, a great place to, you know, cut my teeth on, you know, working on, you know, dozens of transactions every month and, you know, working on different types of deals all across the country. And then after about three and a half years, that that analyst program is you either kind of you know jump up or jump out, and so I was lucky enough to kind of jump up into production. Um, I actually transitioned from the mortgage banking side of the business over to the multifamily investment sales side. Um, there was a team in Houston uh, that had come over from CB uh, that was very well established, and so I headed up their B and C multifamily sales platform. I did that from I think end of 2013 up until the end of 2016. And that's whenever I wanted to get out of the brokerage side of the business and make a transition. And so at that point, I didn't know if I wanted to go into development or start buying my own deals and get onto the GP side, or if I wanted to get uh, onto the lending side. And then I landed at Flagship as an originator uh, for their initial, uh, not their initial debt fund, it was debt fund four, uh, but really just putting together uh, bridge loans out of their fund. And since then, it's been almost four years, and we have uh, we grew debt fund four from fifty million to one hundred twenty five million, and closed out that fund in November of last year with a couple loans, one in New Braunfels and one in Tulsa, and then we uh, quickly raised another debt fund, and so now we have one hundred twenty five another one hundred twenty five million dollar debt fund, and we closed our first deal in Fort Smith, Fort Smith Arkansas in December. And uh, we've got a handful of deals lined up now. And so that's the debt side of the business at Flagship, uh, where I run originations for kind of Texas and the surrounding states, which is our main focus. And then the other side of the coin is ever since I've been here at Flagship, uh, we've run somewhat like a family office, uh, you know, syndicating equity for multifamily and other commercial type transactions. Did about 50 million on a deal by deal basis where, you know, somebody would come in to one of my principals or myself and say, I'm buying a $20 million apartment complex. I need 5 million in equity. You know, us in the office, we'd put together two or 3 million bucks. And then we'd call a couple of friends and, and round out the stack. And that process can be pretty cumbersome uh, for those who are out there that raise equity on a deal by deal basis. It's, it's a complete pain. Um, and so we went, uh, kind of towards the other side of that and went out and raised a formal fund as a fiduciary uh, for our kind of partners capital, uh, raised 50 million bucks. We closed the fund in January of 2020. Um, we closed our first deal a few days before COVID hit. And then we continued to close transactions throughout the rest of last year. We closed five deals, uh, four multis in one office building. And then we closed a 
deal in Phoenix about four weeks ago, and we've got LOIs out executed on three more deals, one in a suburb of Portland, one in Atlanta, and then another one in Dallas, and um, hopefully got some other ones in the Carolinas and in Texas coming up. And so the real basis of the equity fund is to focus on multifamily um, value-add LP investment opportunities uh, all across the country. And uh, we are also investing in some select office building transactions as well, uh, probably 75% multifamily, 25% other commercial types with a heavy hand on office. And we're three to five year investors. We come as, come in as an LP, Perry pursued all other monies in the deal. And we're looking for mid-teens plus net IRRs on our money. Uh, and we've got full discretion of our capital, which is a nice thing at flagship is we don't have some large committee. Uh, the two principals are here in my office. Uh, I run originations for both the debt and the equity platforms. And it's a lot of time on uh, planes, trains, and automobiles. But it's um, it's been a, a good experience over the past four years. And uh, we're growing and growing our capital and looking for, for new opportunities, both on the debt and equity side. Awesome. Yeah, you, you've been uh, very active in the space. And, um, you know, I'm excited to get into kind of, you know, how you structure your deals and, and uh, maybe talk through an example. But uh, before we do that, I want to jump back on to, to uh, the Silver Spurs. Uh, you know, I, I went out to a USC game or UT USC game uh, a couple of years ago and saw that, that whole ordeal in person. And it's, it's wild. What was that like? How did you get into to doing that? Yeah, so interesting deal. So being from Amarillo, I grew up, you know, around livestock and had a lot of friends that were very active in 4-H and, and other kind of animal showing activities. And so I am comfortable around, you know, livestock and other animals and went to school at UT. And there was an opportunity for me to join that organization through the fraternity that I was in. And then kind of the natural progression is, you know, get the, get the redneck from Amarillo to take care of the steer. Um, and so <laughs> ended up uh, really falling in love, one with the animal and two, the bakers who were the owners of Bevo. And just, um, it's really a breath of fresh air to, to be around people that are um, involved in livestock and 4-H and, um, you know, raising animals to help raise funds for kids to go to college is, is still a very important part of my life. I'm a 10-year commitment of the Houston Livestock Show and Rodeo, and I'll actually be out there next week. Even though the main rodeo got canceled, we're still going out there and helping kids get their animals showed so that they can auction them off and raise funds for college. And so uh, the passion kind of started while my friends were doing it in high school, and then you go to college and get the opportunity, and it was it was a lot of work, I'm not going to lie. You know, you we had to be at the ranch about six hours before each game, so on a, a noon start, that's an early morning for a college kid. Uh, but, you know, we'd go out to the ranch, you know, three or four days a week and go tend to the animal, um, make sure everything was ready to go. And then we would travel with them all across the country um, and take them to all the different games. And uh, there's a large network of kind of alumni in our organization that have ranches pretty much near every major city. And so when Bevo actually went out, I was at the, the national championship whenever we were out at the Rose Bowl. I wasn't a handler, but my buddies were. They found oh, ranches. That game. Yeah, yeah. So they... <laughs> They found ranches all the way from Austin, uh, El Paso, Las Vegas, and then Southern California to to hold the animal uh, while they were going out there. And so, pretty, pretty, uh, really fun deal. And you know, something that you know, at some point I need to pull it off my resume. But it's always a good kind of conversation piece to to talk to people about. So it was a great experience. That's awesome. Uh, what I mean, good on you. That's a, that's I've seen. That's a big animal. I I wouldn't do it. Um, so that's a very cool tradition and. Um, Thanks for sharing. Um, kind of shifting gears back to, to flagship, you know, maybe talk us through, um, you know, 
what what is the typical sponsor you know that you work with look like and um you know what kind of deals are they doing and how are they being structured yeah so um you know, I always tell people that we're not going to do somebody's first deal. Um, you know, I think there's a, a different type of capital for every type of sponsor out there. Um, you know, and so if it's somebody really kind of doing their first syndication deal or really just trying to get into real estate that's leaving some other type of industry, probably not a good fit for flagship. Um, but we are willing to do people's, you know, second and third deal. So uh, for us, it's somebody who's gone full cycle on one transaction and somebody that is entrepreneurial in the fact that we like to do multiple deals with the same sponsor. Uh, because in a business like ours, you know, you're trying to cut down your, your time spent out there seeking new, new sponsors. So the hardest thing for me to do is to call around to every broker and every broker call me to try and find, you know, the good people buying the good deals. It's typically not the other way around. It's not the bad people finding the good deals. And so we're extremely sponsorship driven here at flagship. And so I typically tell people in between kind of deals two and 15 is where we catch a lot of our borrowers on the debt side. Um, just because once people kind of get into the larger institutional type world, they'll, they'll have direct relationships um, in kind of a, a ongoing agreement with a certain lender so that they can really kind of scale up. Uh, somebody who, has in-house management is something that we'd like. Uh, typically, if it's a value add group, we really like them to have their own construction company uh, just because we've we've learned from the GP side, which is where Flagship came from. Uh, the two principals in my office owned about 30,000 units uh, from the early 90s to the early 2000s. And so we understand the GP side of this business and have owned construction companies and management companies. And we really, it helps take out one more kind of link in the chain uh, so that the, the sponsors can really keep a, keep an eye on their projects. So we like people that are vertically integrated. We like the people to live uh, nearby where their deals are. Uh, I can't tell you how many times I've got guys from California that are buying deals in Houston and they just see a cap rate and they think that they can come in and, and operate this deal. And if you don't know the submarket and the demographic of your tenant, it's tough. Uh, and so if somebody's not living in the market where they're doing the deal, we like them to be there, you know, once every three weeks or so. Uh, and so that's really important to us. And then uh, sponsors having money invested in the deal is also very important to us. You know, we mandate on the debt side that the sponsor has 10% net equity uh, in the deal themselves personally. So if it's a $7 million equity check uh, to get the deal taken down, we, we need them to have 700K in the deal. Um, and that's net of any acquisition fee that's net of, you know, any other fees that they're going to be taking at closing because we'd like to have alignment of interest um, in these deals because, you know, we're, we're a debt fund that keeps everything on our balance sheet. And a lot of the money that's coming out of our debt fund is our own personal capital here in the office. And so we don't think it's too much to ask to have a sponsor uh, with interests that are aligned with ours by having actual, actual skin in the game. So that's important for us on the debt side. Um, and obviously, you know, anybody who's got any bankruptcies or anything in their histories for how long that you've been in this business, um, that you're probably going to have a, a skid mark or two. Um, and so I think that as long as there's a good explanation and people can tell us, you know, what happened in 07, and as long as we can make some phone calls and understand that they operated ethically through that, that bad time for a lot of real estate guys that we can get over it. But we do conduct extensive background checks, um, and make sure that everybody's, Credit's good and all their previous, you know, borrowing activities have been ethical. Um, and so really 
we like to see people with some experience, somebody who's got some skin in the game. Uh, net worth and liquidity requirements are uh, something that we can work with. Typically, I like uh, liquidity, cash or cash equivalents, you know, equal to one year's debt service. And I like to have, uh, you know, a net worth at or above the loan amount. Um, and really just talking to people and getting to know them beforehand. We're, our courtship is pretty heavy on the front end with our sponsors. Uh, but once you're kind of in a deal with us, it tends to be a very, very fluid process because we're not a lender by trade. We're owners of real estate by trade. And so we really get that if something goes wrong in the budget, you can contact us. And as long as you're transparent, we can probably work with you and move some things around. We're not in the business of trying to string up borrowers or take assets back. We've lended, I think, upwards of $425 million and two to $15 million loan amounts on these bridge debt funds of ours, and we've never taken a deal back. Um, and so I think that's, Wall Street would say that we're not pushing the risk curve hard enough, uh, but we're just really not in the business of, of taking assets back because while that sounds sexy to somebody who doesn't know it or, or somebody who hasn't done it before, it's really just kind of a pain in the ass and you, and you don't make a lot of money doing it. And typically it's, it's just not a good situation for, for both parties. And so that's something that we really don't like to do. Yeah. It's you're in the business of uh, building partnerships. Um, and so to kind of sum up what you just said, I guess, you know, to, to start developing a partnership with flagship, you've got to, you know, have a little bit of experience, one or two deals under your belt, um, some skin in the game, uh, some boots on the ground operations, hopefully, and uh, be a, a good person. Um, so, what, I mean, when, when should people reach out? When, I mean, is it when they, they're under contract or uh, before that? Or, you know, we, we, there's a fine line between, you know, spinning wheels and, and uh, you know, being conscious of your time and, and you know, having that relationship set up, you know, before it's go time. So when, when do you like to hear from people? Yeah. So on the, the debt side, you know, it really, I think the earlier, the better, um, just because truing up the debt, it's the chicken and the egg, right? You know, it's like, well, you have to get the equity to get the debt. You have to get the debt to get the equity. Um, and so we understand that again, we've, we've bought and, and sold a lot of transactions before. So Typically, whenever I like to see the underwriting and stuff come across my desk is whenever somebody has, you know, hasn't agreed upon, you know, contract price. You know, you can still be kind of nitpicking the PSA and not have the deal truly under contract. But if you've submitted a bid, uh, you know, probably not worth my time to really go full bore on the underwriting. But if you if you're close and you think you're pretty close to kind of, you know, getting the deal, then I'm happy to underwrite it, get some initial feedback to you. Um, on the equity side, typically. You know, we can fund equity transactions faster than we can fund debt transactions just because of obviously all the reporting and, and all the documentation that's involved, um, especially coming in as an LP on the the equity side. Uh, typically, we can close those transactions in, in three weeks after executing an LOI. On the debt side, we transact in under 30 days after an executed LOI. Um, and so on the equity side, you can come a little bit later. Uh, but I'm a big proponent of getting deals in sooner rather than later. And if it's a no, I can tell you a quick no. And you can kind of go down the road and get your deal closed. But if it's a yes, I should be able to get some initial feedback to you, you know, 24, 48 hours on, hey, we're interested. You know, this is ballpark where we would be. Uh, here's my, our list of questions. And if you get those answered, we'd like to set up a call with the, you and the sponsor, um, you know, if it's coming from a broker or directly with the sponsor. Um, and our process thereafter is after we have that initial call and it goes well, we typically both on the debt and equity side email kind of a bullet outline of terms that, you know, is loan amount or investment amount. Um, on the debt side, it'll be rate term, 
you know, minimum interest timeline, you know, exit fees, everything like that. On the equity side, it'll be investment amount, pref, waterfall, you know, any other, you know, things that we think are high level business points that we need to kind of jump in front of. And if the sponsor and or the broker say, hey, we're close, then then we'll get a term sheet to you both on the debt or equity side within 48 hours. And once that term sheet is negotiated and executed, we require a deposit for both our debt and our equity side. And I'm typically on a plane uh, to come see you meet at the property. Um, and then if everything goes well after that initial deal, we're going to docs and we're closing two to two to three weeks later, depending on the third parties on the debt side or depending on just the timeline of the closing uh, for the debt to be secured on the equity side. Great. So, you know, you got an efficient process for, for both the, the debt and the equity side of it. Um, is it possible? Can we talk through maybe a, a recent deal and, and the structure of it? I mean, you know, I don't want you to divulge any specifics, but something to give our listeners some context. Yeah. 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 So I just, I think I, we just sent out a blast uh, not too long ago, uh, like 15 minutes ago, uh, four recent closings that we had um, on the debt side. I'll go over a deal that we did in central Texas. So this is a group out of Aspen that I know well. Um, that acquires multifamily deals. They've got a big portfolio in Central Texas and they bought a bunch of stuff in El Paso recently. They own some deals in Colorado and New Mexico as well. But uh, it was a you know hundred plus unit deal uh, in kind of the New Braunfels area. And they came to us and they were requesting 75% of cost on that deal. I think you know they were buying it for 75 a door type thing and gonna put six to eight thousand dollars into it. And uh, we found out throughout the process that there was a large easement from an adjoining property owner <laughs> that was in the property. And so this will kind of give you some insight into flagship's ability to be nimble. So we ended up figuring out a way to get around the easement issue uh, by having to kind of get back in a relationship with the adjoining property owner because the adjoining property owner despised the seller and wanted to do everything possible to sabotage the sale of the deal. So we really kind of had to play uh, some old school real estate games to get in contact with them, let them know that we're going to be the new the the new lender and the owner was going to be the new owner and got an agreed upon uh, purchase kind of buyout of that easement uh, finished by closing. And then also there was an active uh, water event, hurricane in the Gulf. And so at the close, day before closing, we couldn't bind insurance. So we had to push that another week, but ended up getting that deal closed at 75% of cost. Uh, I think we funded everything that we needed to at closing, held back about 800 grand, um, you know, which is about 8K a unit uh, to finish the renovation. And interest rate on that deal was, I think, 575 or 6% point in, point out type loan. And initial term was 24 months with two one-year extensions. And I had a call with the sponsor the other day, and they're going to pay us off at 12 months in a day. Uh, which is uh, we have a minimum interest requirement of, of 12 months. So you can pay us off at any time, but if you pay us off at month nine, you need to pay for those three months and then pay the exit fee. Uh, they're going to wait until the end of that 12 month period. And they've already executed their business plan, uh, drastically increased rents. And, and we're going to be out of that deal, you know, 12 to, you know, probably 15 months. Um, and so that's a good example of, you know, a loan that we've done on the debt side, on the equity side, I uh, can talk about a deal that we did in Phoenix. Uh, that was a three property deal uh, that a, actually another guy out of Denver uh, that I know uh, was introduced to us through a broker who's a good friend of mine, an ex HFF guy in Newport Beach. Um, and so he hooked us up with a 
client who already owned a deal in Phoenix had done very well. Um, they were buying the deal for, you know, call it low 120s a door uh, for 1980s vintage Phoenix product, which is pretty unheard of right now. Uh, it was kind of been a four and a half to four seven five cap, which value add deals in Phoenix are trading at three and a half to three seven five caps right now. Uh, so we felt very comfortable about the going in basis, the going in yield. Um, his business plan was to put washers and dryers in the units and uh, value add, you know, on select units, some had been renovated and some had been not. Uh, and so that was a deal that we closed. I think it was 15 business days after having an executed LOI. I think our investment amount was $4 million in that deal. Uh, total equity for that transaction, I think was seven and a half. So he had some friends and family that rounded out the rest of the stack and he personally had about a million dollars in the deal. Uh, and the deal that we had on that one, I think that was a nine pref, 7525 to a 17 and then a 6040 thereafter. Uh, and I think we got, you know, a point or two on our money. Uh, and that was kind of that, uh, you know, the, the other equity partners in the deal liked our negotiated uh, kind of waterfall and structure and the, the sponsor was okay with it. And so typically on these deals, if we're not the sole LP, if there's a, you know, an LP group that's got, you know, 60% of the equity in the deal, they're typically going to negotiate the terms and we come in and accept those terms. And if we need to accept any, you know, any differences on, you know, we need something different than the other LPs then we just kind of conduct that in a side letter or discuss with the other LP to see if they want to change their deal to match what, what makes us whole. That that's an example of two transactions that we've done recently, both on the debt and equity side that are pretty bread and butter for us. And, you know, we'd like to do, 10 or 15 more of those this year. Great. <clears throat> on that, uh, on that Phoenix deal, you, you mentioned you liked your basis going in and, you know, you kind of are solving for uh, a certain, you know, IRR uh, across the entire project. Can you maybe give us some insight into your uh, underwriting philosophy and, you know, maybe where, where you see some sponsors go wrong and there, there's, there's, you know, people don't see eye to eye on, on maybe how you evaluate, um, rent or expense growth or, um, you know, there's certain underwriting assumptions that there's, there's some push and pull on. Yeah. So I think the biggest mistake that people are making, you know, on value add deals now, and, and especially a lot of syndicators that are out there, they're really pumping these things for online funding and, and such is that, you know, the, the story of just blindly putting in, you know, five to $10,000 a unit and getting a hundred to $150 rent increases is just not true. Um, it's so specific to what's going on in the, in the market. Um, like Houston, for example, I have friends that have, you know, three to 5,000 units that they own here and they've all stopped renovating just because they're just not getting it. Um, it's just a fact. And, you know, but there's other markets, uh, for example, our Phoenix deal, we underwrote $300 rent increases on that 8k, uh, deal, which is a pretty hefty, uh, return for not spending a ton of money on a, on a unit, but he went in and that deal he just leased a unit that used to rent for $700 for $1,200. Um, and so, you know, damn near double the rent. Uh, and so it's really market driven and you really have to prove that up. So I think the biggest thing that I really pull back on on the underwriting is how much you're putting in and how much rent increases you plan on getting out of it. I'm super realistic on what can be achieved and what's being achieved at other, other properties nearby. So that's probably the first thing. I mean, rent growth, just generic rent growth. Um, it's very market driven. I mean, Houston, it's going backwards. Dallas, it's slow. Austin, it's flat. Um, but if you read the headlines for Austin and Dallas, you think that rent would be growing at 6% annualized, but it's just not. 
Um, and so if somebody's just blindly putting in 3% and 2.5% expense growth, then I'm probably not going to do that. Um, typically, what I like to do is really give a little bit of credit just for market generated rent growth, you know, maybe 1% to 2%, maybe. But really, I just like to, to underwrite the, the value add uh, kind of rent increases in the deal. And then I'll grow it at 1% to 2% past that expense growth you know, call it what you want, two, 3%, you know, really not uh, that big of a deal to me. Uh, taxes are the biggest thing for me on the expenses. Um, I can't not tell you how many deals in Texas that have just gotten gotten crucified uh, on the tax front and there's nothing you can do about it. So being a non-disclosure state, um, you know, you can really, you historically have been able to get away with underwriting anywhere from 50 to 70% of purchase price on your taxes. Now it's looking more like 100 to 110% of purchase and you're having to spend money on litigation to get it back down to where you're walking in with the closing statement at the courthouse saying, this is what I paid for the deal just to get back to normal. So that's obviously a Texas issue. Phoenix, that's not an issue. Uh, you know, our deal in Portland, that's not an issue. So really taxes and, and doing a deep tax analysis, because that's, that's obviously that and insurance are the biggest line items that you've got um, on your expense side. So that's really big for me. And then just cap rate kind of assumptions. So I did an analysis on our Portland deal, which was surprising to me. You know, I said, all right, so deals are trading at Portland cap rates are kind of the same as Phoenix, you know, value add deals are three and a half to 4%, which is just crazy, but it is what it is. That's kind of the price of playing poker up there. And so I did a historical analysis saying, well, that's where cap rates are today when interest rates are at zero or whatever, you know, depending on what index you're looking at. But what if, you know, LIBOR, which is kind of going away, but what if SOFR goes up or what if the treasury, where was the 10-year treasury yield when, you know, where cap rates, if the 10-year was at two and a half percent, where cap rates still three and a half on value add. And in the Pacific Northwest and other major markets, you know, it was, but in Texas, it was not. So for me on where interest rates are today, I, I'm underwriting a little bit of cap rate expansion on a lot of deals. And it's interesting because some of these syndicators and other sponsors, frankly, are underwriting cap rate compression, which is just unbelievable to me. Um, and so on a Texas deal that we've done recently, you know, the going in cap rate was a little over a five. I put an exit at a 575 or a six just to be conservative. And our number still made sense. I think that deal trades inside of that all day on a cap rate scale. But I just think if interest rates move, cap rates cannot stay the same in kind of Southern markets. It's just not going to work. And so because the numbers aren't going to work and the capital doesn't drive to Southern markets like it does to other kind of, you know, Pacific markets or, you know, uh, coastal markets. And so I think really cap rate reality is something that, that I really like to see on underwriting. So if somebody's buying a deal at a four and a half and they're taking it to a five and a quarter on the exit, um, that, that's, that, that feels good. There's no, specific delta that I need to see. It's really just kind of how does that cap rate, you know, look on an exit if interest rates go up. Um, and to that point, also refinance assumptions. Uh, you know, I highly doubt that Freddie's going to be lending out money at 3% at 75% in four years. I just don't believe it. So refinance assumptions are something that I really do push back on also, because that's a big IRR factor. You know, because if you're returning capital midway through the project, um, you know, that, that has a high impact on the IRR, obviously. And so I, I'm, I get pretty, I mean, I'm not over the top conservative, but I'm very realistic on refinance assumptions, exit cap rates. And at the end of the day, some of these things, you really have to think of them on a price per pound. So in Houston, I don't think that investors are going to be willing to pay 120 k a door for 1980s vintage product. 
I just don't think that they're going to be able to stomach that in three to five years. I think that low 100s make sense, but at some point buyers in southern markets, central, southwest, you know, Texas, southeast, you know, they are going to get, there's just going to be kind of a, a sticker shock on some of these things on the exit. And unless everything is going perfect, I just don't see capital being like, all right, I'm going to pay 150 a door for a 1970s vintage deal in Dallas. You know, if it was in Oakland or San Francisco all day, you know, that's probably more like 350 a door. But, um, you know, I just, I think that you really, it's kind of a, an art, not a science trying to figure out the cap rate per unit, you know, kind of combo on the thing on the exit, because for us as investors, I got to think of who buys this deal and how are they going to look at it? Because they have to walk into an investment committee also. And so are they going to walk in and say, Hey, this deal's a five and a quarter cap at, you know, 102 a door. It, that would sound okay to me in a few years. But if somebody walked into my office and said, an analyst or, you know, one of the associates here comes in and says, Hey, I've got a four cap in Houston. That's 145 a unit. You know, the deal makes a 20 IRR. I'm going to say, no, it doesn't. Um, you know, and so I just, you got to be kind of cognizant of who's buying these deals and what the capital is going to be looking for on the tail end. Right. So very kind of cognizant of, of what's going on in, in the greater, you know, fixed income markets and what's, you know, cause right now a lot of that's driving, cap rates down as, as people come into real estate, but uh, if they can find yield elsewhere, that, that that's going to affect uh, the tail end of your investment. Yep. Um, so kind of moving into, um, I guess, kind of a current event topic or, you know, just a, a hot topic right now, you know, the, the, there's kind of a, a few philosophies on, you know, asset classes and, you know, let's keep it with multifamily. Um, you know, what's your take on, kind of class A versus the uh, lower tier assets? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, we talk about it all the time because as we're raising these new funds, you know, we, we got to figure out kind of what our, our focus is going to be. Um, and I think that for us, until there's any major distressed opportunities, uh, not anything like we saw in COVID, which was, you know, five to 10% maybe on multis. Um, I think that the workforce housing space is, is the only space that we want to play in. Um, for uh, uh, several reasons, you know, I think one, at the end of the day, there, there's a, you know, government subsidized lending platform that is Freddie and Fannie, um, that are always going to lend at the cheapest possible rate on that until something changes on the political stage. And I don't foresee that happening even with the current administration. So that's one. Two, it's, it's, it's very simple supply and demand for us. Workforce housing is not accretive to build because you can't get the rents. You cannot build affordable housing. Uh, or workforce housing. You can build affordable if it classifies as affordable, but again, that's subsidized, subsidized by the government. So for us, there's always going to be people that have a necessity to live in the workforce housing type units and you can't build it anymore. So for us, it's very simple supply and demand. Um, and then kind of point three. And sorry to interject, just, just for our listeners there, that, that's, that's kind of a function of re replacement cost and then you know, not being able to you know, put up a competing building uh, on the vacant lot next door, right? Yeah, correct. I mean, land's too expensive, you know? And so if you could charge $1,400 a month, um, then you could do that. But if you charge 700 a month, then it costs you, you know, to build a brand new class A deal in Houston, it's two mid, you know, four story wrap deal, it's 240 a unit. You know, they have to get 1800 to $2,000 rents to make that thing pencil. To build a, you know, three story garden style deal that is workforce-y, kind of deal, you know, call it, it's 170 to 180 a door. 
and you still need to get kind of $1,200 rents to make that thing pencil. And so there's really not, you can't go build these things for a hundred a unit. Um, and that's what, you know, value add deals are saying they're going to trade for on the exit. So it's really just not, it's not cost prohibitive to, to build new workforce housing out there in the market, especially in more dense markets like, you know, California in New York and others. Mm -hmm. And then, uh, you know, I really just think that on kind of the risk adjusted return scale, right? So when things go really bad, people move from, the high rise to the four story and people that used to live in the four story move from the four story to the two story and people that live in the two story move to the one story and the people that live in the one story move to the one story to the one story to the one story. I mean, so people move down. Um, and that is from a risk standpoint, something that we like. So when the market crashes, people don't move into nicer places. And so for us, it's all about risk adjusted return, right? So we think that if we can make a 15% return on something and in a terrible Armageddon type scenario, that 15 goes to a six, you know, that feels pretty good. But in the class A space, you're not going to be getting much higher, probably lower from a return standpoint. If you invest in those deals and your risk is substantially higher because there's a decent, decent chance that that deal could go back to the lender and you could be completely wiped out. Um, and so for us on a risk adjusted basis, the workforce housing is really all that we want to be in. Um, simply supply and demand, the, the financing is always going to be available for those type of projects. Um, and on the risk adjusted kind of scale of different types of real estate, sure, it's, it's really hard to make a 30, uh, but it, making double, low double digits to mid double digits on those type things, if you're buying them right and working them right and financing them correctly, um, it's a pretty good risk adjusted return we feel like compared to other asset classes mm -hmm. yeah um so next question is kind of uh you know let, tell us about a war story you know maybe a deal that uh you know, didn't go as planned or you know to, to tell us uh you know if you if, if you don't mind sharing yeah so i'm trying to think um you know i've always been this is kind of on the lending side which is interesting, um, you know, it really kind of shows the true stripes of, you know, CLO and CMBS guys on, on Wall Street um, and shows you how much they care about originating your loan. So I was doing a loan origination on a shopping center, Northwest Houston, I think it was in 2014, had a bank on the end cap, you know, it was a 150,000 square foot deal up in Kingwood. And the originator, some CMBS guy at, you know, one of the sketchy shops, uh, you know, that every shop is sketchy on the CBS side, but they just changed their names over the years. Um, and so this guy flew in on a Tuesday and we were doing a full 75%, 4.5% rate deal to take pictures and get ready to, to you know, get the deal securitized uh, so that we could close and then he could sell the note after. That Saturday, um, not really the real estate's fault, it was a good area, but that um, there was a smack, like a car ran into the bank on the side, two people were murdered, bank robbery, the whole thing. Us as an ethical broker called the, the syndicator on his cell phone and said, hey, you know, there was a robbery, you know, everything like that. And he goes, is it in the papers yet? And we were like, I don't, I don't think so. The, the owner just called and told us. And this was on a Tuesday, I think. And he said, great, let me know whenever it gets in the papers the second that you hear. And um, he securitized the deal and sold the paper, you know, X amount of days later. 
Um, and then we sent him the article and he just responded. He goes, yeah, already, already taken care of. Don't worry about it. Uh, kind of deal. So he just wanted to know that if his BP spire was going to be able to figure out if that had happened on the property in time. Um, and he didn't care because he had already sold the paper. So that, that was just kind of an interesting eye opener for me earlier in my career. And which is why, again, I like flagship because we're balance sheet lenders because we live with these loans. Uh, cause there's a lot of people out there that don't live with these loans. Um, and I, we have a lot of borrowers and, or not borrowers, a lot of equity clients too, that whenever they ask us, who should we do the loan with? We say, always go with a balance sheet bridge lender uh, for that exact reason, because you don't want to get caught with the servicer um, and have to deal with all that. So that, that was an interesting one. And, and unfortunately that was CMBS 2.0 and now we're in CMBS 4.0 um, and the, the game hasn't changed one bit. Yeah. It's unfortunate. There is a lot of misalignment of interest out there and you know, it, it really, you know, first of all, you got to make sure the people you're working with are ethical and, and good people. And then, you know, it helps when, when everything's aligned uh, in, in a shop like yours where your balance sheet and, you know, even beyond that, um, you know, there's other benefits to, to working with a balance sheet lender that, you know, you, you mentioned a few of them, but just, you know, knowing, knowing who to, you know, who you can talk to and when, uh, you know, you need to work something out. Um, so let's end it on a high note here. T tell us about your best deal. What, what, uh, maybe, you know, best transaction or deal you've done. Yeah. So, uh, nobody really ever asked about that. I'm trying to think, Oh, there's a good one. So, we recently exited uh, outside of our equity fund, uh, but a good example of the type of deal that we would invest in in our equity fund. This deal was a uh, 274 kind of manufactured home community uh, in Northwest Houston. So went in on the deal. So it's literally like off the truck, put it down two, three, four bedrooms adjacent to a, a nice master plan community type deal. And it was rent by the little home type deal. I think our guy went in at the, the transaction and bought it from a guy who had kind of developed it, but really didn't know what he was doing. And he wanted to get back to developing real lots and everything like that. So I think we went in on the deal. I think the purchase price was, you know, 14 million bucks um, for that was in it for three and a half years, had bank debt on it at like four and a half percent. And then it just transacted before the end of the year at a $21 million sale uh, on a three year hold and it netted, to the investors after the promote to the sponsor, like a 37 IRR um, or something like that to us and our partners. And so kind of a, a different asset class, something that we thought we were going to make 13% on, uh, but the market really kind of, you know, drove up. And I think the SFR market is something that we would like to kind of get more into because this is a great example of how it, it worked out. But, uh, you know, something that we really thought the deal was going to exit on kind of a seven and a quarter cap just because it was manufactured housing kind of thing. And it, it, it traded at a 475 cap. Um, and so that helps the numbers, obviously. And so yeah. it was uh, it was good cash flow going in. It's one of the few times that, you know, it just worked out without us acting smart, uh, just getting lucky. Um, you know, and I think that that just shows you a good way that it can turn. Uh, but also I was talking to my boss, David, about this the other day. He's been in transactions where it's gone the other way. Um, and, and that's, uh, you know, back in the 80s and early 90s and the Enron time down here in Houston or in the 80s, you know, the oil crash then or in 2007, 2008, when people were buying deals on four caps. And then the only way that they could exit the deal was saying, hey, this is a seven yield. 
uh, you know, you come by it at a seven yield. Um, and that obviously will crush your numbers. Um, and so that is, was a good reminder that, it, you know, the, the barn door swings both ways. It's better to be lucky than smart sometimes. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. Well, um, really appreciate you, you joining us here and, uh, you know, we'll get this out. Um, to our listeners and uh yeah thanks thanks again jcc um well if if people uh listening want to reach you how can they uh what's the best way for them to get in touch and you know kind of start developing you know sponsors out there that want to maybe work with flagship uh yeah i mean my, my first response would be to call you uh you know because we we do kind of lean heavily on our our brokerage community out there to to help us vet deals, you know, it's just for as lean as a shop as we are, um, we really like to have kind of advisors and friends out there uh, that can help kind of pre-screen and, you know, help us do that. But if anybody wants to reach out to me direct and ask questions on markets that we like, prior deals that we've closed, you know, all my information's on the on the website, uh, my cell phone um, and office line and email. So feel free to reach out at any time. Happy to answer any questions about our program, any deals that we've closed you know, past or present and kind of what we're looking to do. But, but I really do, uh, you know, work a lot with brokers and, and tend to go that route. So um, either however you want to get to me, you can get to me.